Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Psalm 29, the voice of God in a great storm, a psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Sarayim like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord causes the oaks to whirl and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all say glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Our next reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Aaron would say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, prepare our hearts to receive your word to us. Guide us by your Holy Spirit that in your light, we may see light. In your truth, find freedom. And in your will, discover the peace of your Holy Son and your way for us in this time and place. We pray these things through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 
Well, as Aaron mentioned earlier, today is Trinity Sunday, and we Christians have finished the seasons of Lent and Easter, seasons meant to prepare the church for discipleship and mission. And now we're in this long season called Ordinary Time, a season when the church lives out her discipleship and carries God's good news forward into the world as we walk this road of faith. The liturgical color of this time is green, and green reminds us of growth and fruitfulness as we are connected to Christ the vine. As we begin the season of ordinary time, doing what God has called and prepared for us to do, it's good to just step back for a moment and remember the nature of this one who loves us and gives us the wisdom, energy, and perseverance to carry out God's mission in the world. Today, we bring to the forefront our trust in and our reliance on the triune God, whom we know as three in one and one in three. Trinity Sunday can be a heavy lift for preachers. While all the other church festivals and holy days mark events, Trinity Sunday marks a teaching of the church that has animated her for centuries and yet is hard to put a finger on. In my past years of teaching children in Sunday school, I struggled with how to speak of the Holy Trinity. In my efforts to explain the triune God, I would speak about God being like H2O. I mean, you know, um, just like H2O can be water, ice, and steam, so God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know others have used illustrations like the shamrock or three notes that make a single chord or three parts of an apple to talk about the Trinity. These explanations are helpful, but can be confusing to children and not very satisfying to adults. None of my explanations of Trinity answered the all important question many of us wonder about, namely, so what? Why does it matter that God is triune? Does the Christian confession that God is three in one and one in three really matter to our lives of faith on a daily basis? Down through the ages, our church fathers and many theologians who have tried to explain this God mystery to us were not inviting us into the challenge of problem solving. Instead, they wanted to help us understand and appreciate that who God is beyond any human, that who God is, is beyond any human formulations. We are being invited into a mystery that God is at once, both and equally, one and three. It's a statement of who God is, not a philosophical puzzle or a mathematical uh, riddle to decipher. God is not a mystery to be solved in a neat and tidy way, nor is God a mystery that is not understandable. Rather, as Franciscan Father Richard Rohr says, God is a mystery that is limitless in understanding and a loving relationship that we may enter into. Jesus never used the word Trinity, but spoke of the three to show us relationship. Just before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned his disciples and he said to them, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit, who never left Jesus, will never leave you, 
but will be with you when you go into the world. The ecumenical creeds like the Apostles' Creed are organized around this language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They help us affirm our trust in the triune God and remind us of the Apostles' teaching that was used in the early church. And now the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 did not use the word Trinity either, but he emphasized the threeness of the Trinity in this chapter. Paul wanted the church in Rome to see that God was locating them within God's own family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In listening to today's passage from Romans, we heard that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the adopted children of God, who receive a full inheritance of blessings. Blessings like mercy, forgiveness, and the assurance that we are God's own and joint heirs with Christ Jesus, our sibling. God not only provides a rich inheritance, but also calls these ones to share in all of God's life, both the abundant life and the life of suffering, so that they may also be glorified with him. God's own nature of love and the love that God has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit is a love that is greater than what we can understand. Paul contrasts the work, the work of God's life-giving spirit with the work of the flesh that leads to death. He encourages his hearers to use the Holy Spirit's power and strength to forsake what leads to death and embrace what leads to life to turn away from what leads to death and receive life. How do we do this? Paul says we do it by accepting the Spirit's help to not live according to the flesh. The way Paul uses the word flesh in this passage has nothing to do with our physical bodies. After all, Jesus is the word made flesh. And so in that sense, flesh is good and our bodies are good. Rather, Paul is using this word flesh to mean merely human ways of thinking and living. Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, explains Paul's use of the word flesh this way. Paul's use of the word flesh is not so much about our physical existence, really. It's much more about our moral existence our spiritual existence, our awareness that we are more bent in on ourselves than bent in toward God. We're more interested in the way we think about the world than the way that God thinks or how God wants us to respond to the world or to God's self. Paul wants them and us to overcome this way of thinking. Through the Spirit, we are set free from being bound to our selfish and self-serving ways. And instead, we can allow the Spirit, the very same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, to lead us. And the, if the Spirit leads us, then we are God's own children. It's not easy to let the Spirit of Christ lead us. In this previous chapter, Paul was bemoaning the fact that he had spent a long time living in the flesh. He said something like this, when I wanna do good, evil is right there with me, whispering in my ear. Even though I have the best intentions to do God's will, there's still another directive waging war in my mind. 
time and time again, Paul initially decided for God's way, but then he acted out another way of his own choosing. He admitted that something had gone wrong deep within him, and it got the better of him every time. I can relate to Paul because it gets the better of me too. The question for Paul is to who or to what is one enslaved? Here, the slavery is to fear or to fall back into fear. And we know that there are a lot of things to fear. In fact, Paul mentions some of them in his litany at the end of chapter eight. Things like hardship, distress, persecution, and famine. They provoke fear. But the good news is that this slavery to fear can end because you have received a spirit of adoption. Paul wanted the church to recognize that we are God's children, not of our own merit, but because of God's grace and God's desire to be in relationship with us and to bless us. We are as much a part of God's family as if we had originally been born into it because of God's grace. And if you allow the Holy Spirit to work within your spirit, the Holy Spirit will assure you that you are a beloved child of God. So how we think about the triune God impacts how we think about ourselves. We can witness or see something beautiful about our own lives when we contemplate the relationship of harmony and self-giving love between the one and the three in God's own being. Now, you know that even though I'm emphasizing today the threeness of the one God in this sermon, we know that God is indivisible, meaning God cannot be divided. All the activities of the triune God are the work of all three persons. The Father always works through the Son in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always points to the Son and draws us to the Son who does the will of the Father. When we hear someone speak of God as triune, some of us may be put off by the male-oriented language of Father, Son, and Spirit. Male language for God is the most commonly used language of the many Christian traditions we have inherited. It's the language Jesus used to talk about his relationship with the divine. It's the language that has connected believers since the earliest Christians, and this has shaped our experience of faith. That being said, we can also acknowledge that this language has been used to exclude people or to privilege men over women, to subordinate women with the idea that men are to lead and initiate and women are to respond and follow. And some of you have may have fathers or have known men who did not treat you well. And the resulting great pain has caused you to doubt or to fear all men. I think it's good to remember that all of our theological language, even our most beloved titles for God, is analogical in character. We can use expansive language for God because that is consistent with God's nature. God gives us multiple ways to be and to meet God um, in relationship. The language of Father, Son, and Spirit provides one of those entry points. We also know that scripture uses equivalent female images for God, like mother, midwife, and mother hen who gathers her chicks. Those images are entry points too, 
and they remind us that who God is cannot be confined to our finite language. Paul writes, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Do you see, the Spirit is our way into relationship with the triune God. If Jesus can call God Abba Father because of his unique relationship to God, so can we because of the grace of, that the Spirit shares with us. Do you know what a religious icon is? It's uh, a sacred image that is used as an aid in Christian devotion. Uh, the image is meant to be a visual word to the observer. In fact, you don't really look at an icon as much as you read it. You read it and you prayerfully look through it to help you see the beyond, to see heaven. I have a reproduction of an icon hanging on a wall in my office. It's called the Old Testament Trinity. It's pretty famous, but you may not have seen it. I'm going to show it to you in just a second. It was originally created by the Russian iconographer and monk Andrei Rublev in the 15th century. And his subject is the mysterious story where Abraham receives three visitors as he camps by the oak trees of Mam Mamre in Genesis 18. Abraham serves the visitors a meal. And as the conversation progresses, he seems to be talking straight to God as if these angels were in some way a metaphor for the three persons of the Trinity. I'm gonna share my screen so you can see an image of it. The icon is a visual representation of what Trinity means, of the nature of God and how we approach God. And of course, our depictions of God are incomplete, but Rublev has given us a window through which we can look to see what God might show us. I have time now to make only a few observations about this icon. You can see that the basic geometrical form of it is a circle, uniting the three figures in a flowing pattern. Rublev used colors to, in, uh, to illustrate the facets of the Holy One contained in the three figures. On the right, you see the spirit. The spirit is wearing a garment of the blue of heaven and green to represent fruitfulness and abundance, a quality of aliveness and freshness that makes everything blossom and bloom. The sun in the middle is wearing a garment of reddish brown, symbolizing the earth and a cloak of the blue of heaven. In his person, the sun unites heaven and earth. You see a band of gold shot through his earthly garment that shows his divinity, causing us to recall God in Christ, taking on our humanity. The father on the left is wearing a rose gold color fabric that changes with the light, that seems transparent and a bit hard to define in words. No one has seen the father, but he is perfection, fullness, wholeness, and the ultimate source of all things. The father on the left raises his hand in blessing to the son. And it's hard to tell whether he's looking up at the son or toward the spirit, but his gesture expresses a movement toward the son. I imagine him saying something like, this is my son, listen to him. The hand of the son points on around the circle to the spirit. 
And in this simple array, we see the movement of life toward us. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. Life flows clockwise around the circle. It can flow the other way too, as the Holy Spirit works to draw us to the Son, who brings us into relationship with the Father. Rublev's creation of the Holy One in form of the three is meant in part to show us the relationship of love, hospitality, respect, and graciousness between the three, and I also imagine enjoyment between them. You'll see a table at the center of the picture. It reminds us of Abraham's hospitality to the angels and God's hospitality to us. And at the center of the table, there is a cup. And in the cup, there is a sign of death. The lamb was killed, prepared, and brought to the table. This icon provides a window into the mystery of God's glory and above all, God's self-giving love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell in one another's lives and actions, sharing in fellowship and being in partnership to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But there's one more thing I want you to see. Look at the hand of the Spirit on the right, pointing toward the open place at the table. Is the Holy Spirit inviting offering, and making space for something more. At the front of the table, there seems to be a small rectangular box, and viewers have made a few suggestions as to why this box is there. But the one I like best is that of art historians who believe that some glue stuck on the original icon suggests that there was once a mirror glued to the front of the table. It's surprising when you think about it, that there would be room at this table for a fourth. It's for the observer. It's for you. Yes, you, you are God's adopted child. You are invited to sit at the divine table. You have been created to participate in this relationship of loving and being loved. You have been brought into the circle of the triune God's love, and God is enjoying you. As children of the triune God, God is sending you out as well to engage in the life of our fellow people, entering into fellowship with others, partnering with them in God's mission of love, and also suffering with them as Jesus suffered for us, so that we may also be glorified with him. Brothers and sisters, this is our inheritance. Led by the spirit, we are able to cry out, Abba, Father, a cry that comes from the Holy Spirit engaging with our own spirits, assuring us that we are joint heirs, siblings of Christ Jesus. We don't always know where the spirit is leading us, especially in transitions like the one we're all going through now. But what we do know is that we can trust this triune God who is leading us, and we can respond to the invitation to come to the table. May you experience and know the glory and love of this Holy Three, Holy One, who lives and flows continuously in us. 
and us in the Holy One and Holy Three. Now we can get started on what God has called and prepared for us to do in this season of ordinary time. May it be so. Amen. Amen.